Welcome to the Venture 12 podcast, conversations to engage and inspire missional people. Welcome everybody to the Venture 12 podcast, the greatest show on earth. (laughs) I don't know why I'm saying that, but I felt good saying it on the last podcast. Uh, Keep it going. Keep it going. You've got to have some aspirations, haven't you? Yeah. You've said it twice now. So doesn't that mean you're in a, you're in a a pattern? This is it. This is the. I'm speaking it out. It is officially now the greatest show on earth and there is nothing we can do to change that. (laughs) No. Well, I hope everybody's all right. I mean, we don't get much feedback from the listeners on, uh, these days. Um, so, uh, well, I'll just put that out. I hope you're all right. Uh, today on, on our podcast, I'm, uh, this is Mark speaking, by the way, and I'm joined with my good friend, Chris Halliday. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. I'm doing super well. Thank you very much. It's really good to be back. This is my second Venture 12 podcast. I'm very excited to have That's been right. invited back. Yeah, you were on... Um, which podcast was it? Kathy Beldock. Yeah, yeah, I did know that. So Kathy we uh, in- yeah. interviewed Kathy Beldock, which was just an incredible conversation to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, it was. Mind blowing in many respects. Yeah. And you did such a great job that we decided to bring you back. Well, thanks. What can I say? <laughs> uh, it's, the turning up and talking is one of my uh, one of my spiritual gifts. Yeah, yeah. And it and and just tell us what what's the what's the fan base like there out in Australia? Is that growing? We, Venture twelve. It it definitely is. Uh, there are Venture twelve conversations happening all over the place. I don't know. Maybe I'm in a bubble, uh, Mark. But we we have uh, certainly within the people I know, we talk about Venture twelve. Uh, share it around. There are great conversations to be had. And uh, I just want to pull you up on something. I hope you don't mind. Sorry, listeners. And I, and I hope you don't mind, Mark. This is not going to be too uh, embarrassing. I don't mean to shame you in this way, but you just said then that you don't hear from the listeners very often. And I happen to know that that's not necessarily the case because you did hear from a listener recently about with some feedback. Yeah. You very caught, important you, feedback. You, you've got me there. I just want to apologize for telling a little fib there yeah we did get some feedback um if you didn't listen to the last podcast with greg boyd infinite possibilities um uh i don't know why but at the beginning we ended up talking about starfish and there was a bit of uh confusion about how starfish eat and whether they actually had mouths um which sent everybody sent, you know cat amongst the pigeons we're all not knowing where to go really difficult moment but anyway someone came to the rescue uh a, a venturist or a, a venturer we're not sure what our fan base is called but they they reached they, they sent some feedback in and and apparently did, they did some marine research for us and uh starfish do actually have mouths fantastic and Thank underneath you fan base. Yeah, so that's Sean. Right. Big shout out to Sean. Sean is actually, has actually appeared on the Venture Twelve podcast before, so it's not the first time he's fed back. So, 
I think we're probably almost getting to the point where Sean's going to have a giant V on his shirt. He's that much of a, a super venturist. Yeah, yeah. But it was very helpful just to clear up that that issue about starfish mouths. So great But here we are now, talking yeah. about something completely different than starfish mouths. Uh, yeah, we today. what what a show we've got lined up for you. Um, but before I introduce that, actually, I wanted just to ask you what's going on in your life, Chris? What what's happening yeah. in your context? You shared Thanks a little for bit asking. before we jumped online. It was really interesting. Yeah, so I'm a Salvation Army officer or minister in Melbourne, in uh, in Australia, in the south of Australia, and I'm really in just such an incredible role at the moment. Uh, I lead two Salvation Army Corps or, or, or churches and social centres right in the inner city in Melbourne, so in the inner northern suburbs. Um, some of the most deeply entrenched poverty in Australia. In fact, in, in one of the areas we're in, a place called Richmond, we have uh, a community that is among the bottom one percentile on the socioeconomic scale of Australia. So these are literally some of the poorest of the poor, um, generationally disadvantaged. And our, our core is located right across the road uh, from a massive housing estate with thousands of people who live in, in government housing. Uh, and then just a little bit further away, we have this other core, Brunswick, which has got a long tradition in, in the Salvation Army of reaching out and serving who we would term the last and the lost and the least, those people who are marginalised. And the interesting thing is both of those places are new hipster hotspots, hot right? So gentrification has come, people have got to be bored of gentrification and the hipsters have come flying back. So you've got big LGBTQIA plus community, you've got the artists, the musicians, the young people. If you walk down the street without seeing at least five people wearing mismatched op shop clothes, it's a very strange day. It's that kind of neighbourhood. Um, I guess if you think of like a Soho in a, in a London context, some of that, that real, lots of, of uh, yeah, warehouse conversions and, and those things. So you've got this great juxtaposition where you've got some of the poorest people in the country. You've got people who are entrenched in generational disadvantage uh, and are really a need for, for, for the Salvation Army and for Christ in these areas. And then you've got some young, progressive, open-minded, artists, hipsters, students who are actually looking for ways to participate in the kingdom of God and then right throughout uh, across the whole area that we, we sort of work in and serve, you've got the uh, gay, lesbian, queer hotspot of Melbourne, uh, the gay capital, you might call it, in this area. And so we're there right in the centre and it's it's in, in both cases a, a replant. So we have an incredible team. The Salvation Army has invested uh, very heavily in in this new work and wanting to see these these two core these two churches come back alive again and find new purpose and uh, find what the future looks like for the Salvation Army in this area which is where in Australia in our context it's where the Salvation Army was was founded um, in fact the guy who started the very first Salvation Army social program ever in the world was in my role at Brunswick he was the officer the minister at Brunswick and started the very first social program and then was called back to London by the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, uh, to help him frame worldwide social work model. Wow. And that was back in the late 1800s. Good history. Um, 
so great history, probably boring to any of you who are not from the Salvation Army, but it paints the picture of actually we've, we've, this is where we come from and we've had to ask how we get back there. But in that context, we want to ask how do we become the safest possible church for everybody? We want to be a fully inclusive church, not just for, but particularly including those who are gender or sexuality diverse in all ways, shapes and forms, whether it's you know those that come to us for social services, those who are excluded from society, those who are struggling, but particularly those who are from that sort of hipster, arty crowd that, that are looking for ways to participate in genuine community. And we know that when people participate in what we would call bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, they would call you know, social justice or social action when we all come together and we build relationships with those who are maybe financially well and those who definitely aren't, we can all come around the table together in fellowship and lives can be transformed across and around the table for everybody. And so we're in a, an interesting situation where we're very much starting from scratch with a great team of, of six Salvation Army officers or ministers, awesome volunteers, a good group of social workers who do some of that social work for us. And we get to look at how do we create uh, from the very beginning a fully inclusive, fully affirming church where everybody is welcome and everybody is safe. Wow, that's great. It's, what a great insight into your context and inspiring and uh, really interested to see how, how it unfolds and with both the struggle and the opportunity and, uh, of course, what God's doing in the midst of that. Um, yeah. And just like changing into, well, not changing direction, but just moving into our interview today. Uh, we have got two guests, Megan um, Batts and Elizabeth Black, who are from New York, and they are co-founders of an organization called Kaleidoscope, which um, I guess at its root is trying to forge and uh, bring into being tangible expressions of the kingdom of God. Uh, in New York, um, largely with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Is there anything to add before we? No, there's lots of great content uh, from these two incredible women who are leading the way in many respects. And uh, do you know what? I will mention one thing, Mark, is that we have to remember that they're coming from an American context. And for many of your listeners who I know are all over the world, sometimes these conversations are a bit easier to have. Uh, but when we remember that the, the church, not only around the world, but particularly in America, is so splintered, uh, so fractured on, on this issue, the, the simple fact that these two women are doing what they do and have created a whole infrastructure for supporting others, I think is quite remarkable. So looking forward to uh, how this plays out in, in terms of hearing where they're at and how they got there. Awesome. Well... Here we go. Well, welcome everybody, Meg, Elizabeth, and my friend Christopher to the Venture 12 podcast. Hello, thank you for having us. We're so Hi. delighted. Hi, we're so delighted that you could join us for, for 45 minutes, 50 minutes of great conversation. Um, 
and you, you both, Meg and Elizabeth, you're both from an organization called Kaleidoscope. We'll get into yeah. that in just a moment. Um, but before we jump into any of that, what we always ask at the very beginning of a Venture 12 podcast is, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Perhaps where you're from, what kind of expressions of the body of Christ you've, you've uh, in, you come from? Uh, and then if you remember, uh, how has your understanding of mission perhaps changed from what you inherited as a child to how you see things now? Big questions. I love those questions. Oh my gosh. Okay, Meg, was that you gesturing to me? I think, okay, great. So I guess I'll go first. I haven't had much uh, human interaction on the past couple of days because I've been sick with COVID. So it's good to talk to people. <laughs> so I'm jumping to, to say anything. Okay, so uh, yes, thanks, Mark, uh, for having us. Such a pleasure. Um, I'm Elizabeth Black. I, I grew up in, I'm, I'm from America, if you can't tell by my accent. Uh, grew up in uh, Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, um, and spent most of my life there. Um, grew up in a Christian home, Southern Baptist family, very conservative. Um, but uh, I think along with that, uh, a unique quality for me was though I went to an extremely, a, a pretty conservative white uh, Southern Baptist church. I am um, both African-American and Mexican-American. So my cultures were also a huge influence in, in how I saw the world and saw my faith. Um, so moved to New York after a few years after I got married to my husband and have been serving um, in ministry in New York City for the past 10-ish 10, years, 10 plus years now. Uh, I had been involved in missions uh, as a missionary for the majority of my time um, doing cross-cultural missions among Jewish populations. And then uh, just about a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, started officially doing work with our ministry kaleidoscope. So there's a story of how kind of how that progressed, but that's the long and the short of it. Maybe we'll get into it later. And then the last question of how has my perspective of missions changed? Oh, I think I had growing up in the context that I did in the when I first started learning about missions, I wanted nothing to do with it because I thought missions was only you go on a boat, you say goodbye to your family, you never hear from them again. You might, you know, get eaten by a lion because you're in the jungle somewhere and you know, I, I just I just thought this is not for me. Like I, I can't live like this. I, I need first world amenities. <laughs> and um I I think as I grew older, obviously I came to understand that missions is everywhere and, and how we how we live our life, how we disciple others, um, how we follow Jesus and, and share. The good news of Jesus just in in our everyday living is is a part of missions, and I think that is what really excited me um, because I was I realized I was doing that anyway. You know, even in in middle school and high school with all of my Jewish friends, just listening to their stories of 
of their own, you know, religious background and, and values. And then being able to share my own and, and pray for them and love on them was such a pleasure. Um, but I think I had another, you know, another shift in my definition of missions than when I started, when God started to give me a heart for the LGBTQ community and, and seeing this need, because it honestly kind of took me back to my first, my first thought of missions because there it was going into uncharted territory mm -hmm. um it was going it it was the fear of being eaten by a lion but i think at this point it was the lion of the evangelical church in america unfortunately yeah. um but i i think what has changed in, in that sense is is the idea that um where where God is really calling, I would say all of us in some capacity is to the margins for missions, that that the message of the gospel is for everyone. But when it comes to the idea of missions, it's taking it to those who don't have easy access. It's taking it to those who have experienced some kind of rejection. Um, from the church and to tell them of the good news. It's living a life like Jesus, who was the ultimate missionary in, in every sense. Um, so I, I, I say that with a sense of trepidation because even now, sometimes I'm like, what the heck am I doing? Like, this is crazy. How can anybody call this missions? But um, I'm so thankful for this new script uh, and the enlightenment that the Lord has given me in, in my concept of missions. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Elizabeth. What about you, Meg? Yeah, uh, so my name is Meg Botts, and uh, I'll also do this when we uh, engage with the LGBTQ community. It's often customary to introduce yourself with your pronouns. So my pronouns are she and her. Um, I grew up, I'm also American. And uh, I grew up in Colorado. My dad was raised Catholic. My mom was raised Protestant. And uh, they raised me and my big brother in the evangelical church. Uh, so that's kind of my, my church background. Uh, as for expressions, uh, I guess how my perspective of mission has changed. I think um, something that was really common in a lot of white evangelical churches and just in white culture in general is you're not aware of your own culture. And so I think growing up, I saw it, Christianity as just, okay, we're a kingdom culture, right? We're, we're, we follow the Bible and then um, whatever kind of culture we have just kind of gets mixed up into this blob of Christianity. And I think as I've, as I've grown in my faith, I've realized the importance of culture and that mm -hmm. when I look through the scriptures, cultural differences and cross-cultural work and ministries everywhere. And it's so important as a Christian, I think, to be aware of cross-cultural dynamics. And that has played a huge part actually in our work with the LGBTQ community. Speaking of that, Meg, hey, it's Chris. Uh, it'd be great to hear a little bit about some of that work. I mean, there's so much there we could we could unpack. Um, thanks so much to you both for sharing. But tell us a little on that, Meg. How did how did this ministry, how did this mission, Kaleidoscope, come into being? And uh, look, it'd be awesome to hear some of the the underlying vision, the hope uh, that's that's drawn you both to to this. Sure. So I guess I can start with my story, and then I'll. I'll let Elizabeth share kind of where she's coming from. So like I said, I grew up in the church. I 
I was um, a pretty shy teenager and had just a lot of angsty existential questions about life. And those drew me to God at a, a young age, just had a lot of uh, questions. And my, my dad was someone who really engaged with those questions really well. And um, I think uh, just in my own experience, when I went to college, um, I started wrestling with my sexuality and just was questioning, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, uh, you know, I, I thought that just meant that I was straight. And um, I think having that experience for myself, I realized, oh, if I'm, if I'm experiencing this, the church is not the place I'm gonna go to ask these questions. I've never heard my youth group talk about this or my pastor talk about this in any way that assumes that someone in the church is actually experiencing what I'm experiencing. And so I think that really opened my eyes to, again, just the fact that um, even LGBTQ ministry can be cross-cultural. There is an experience of an entire people group that I did not understand growing up as a Christian, and I wasn't educated on uh, what that experience was like. And so uh, through the years, I actually gained some different opportunities in ministry. I always wanted to be a missionary. Um, I, I always actually really loved the life of Paul, wanting to be single and travel, travel the world and like share the gospel. Like that was kind of my idea of romance in a lot of ways, like a romantic life. I uh, was just being able to to go around the world with Jesus and share the gospel. And um, and so, yeah, I think that, um, oh yeah, so, so after I um, got just some experience outside of college and ministry, I got an opportunity to work with an organization called Posture Shift, doing uh, missiological training for church leaders in LGBTQ uh, ministry and missions. And so I was kind of um, moving forward in posture shift for a long time and just started to really sense God was doing something different and new and had actually met Elizabeth through um, through my work in posture shift and just with the timing of both of us for different transitions in our ministry, we realized that God was actually really wanting to bring us together to start Kaleidoscope. So I'll hand it over to Elizabeth now. Yeah, it's it's really quite funny and interesting how, you know, God's timing was because I remember a few months before we decided to start this ministry, I would call Meg every once in a while and say, Meg, can you pray for me? I'm thinking about leaving my my ministry and I'm really scared. You know, I've been here for almost eight years now and I'm thinking about leaving. And she's like, oh, well, can you pray for me? Because I'm thinking about leaving. And honestly, like there was zero thought in my mind and I'm sure in yours, Meg, that we were going to like start something together. It was just two friends who hadn't even met yet, just praying for one another. Um, and then once we decided to start Kaleidoscope, I think a month had gone by and then Meg came to New York and it was the first time I had met her in person after a few years of developing this friendship and already committing to starting this ministry. So, so cool. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, similar to Meg, it, it was really, it was God kind of placing this in my lap and then a part of my own story as well. So. I was involved in, as I mentioned, um, a Jewish ministry uh, missions organization called Jews for Jesus 
for a number of years. And um, I think in my last about two years of ministering there, I recognized that um, so many people that I was meeting on the streets when we were doing like street evangelism or at a coffee shop or, you know, different places that I would go to build relationships with people. So many people were asking, well, what does God think about me because I'm gay? Or how does God deal with the fact that I'm transgender? Or my best friend is uh, non-binary. And are you telling me that they can't, you know, go to heaven or they can't know God? And I had no answer for them. I mean, obviously I, I knew a little enough to say like, your sexuality is not what sends you to hell or something like that, thankfully. But I think outside of that, I had no, no contextual way of talking to people about this. Um, I only really understood it as an issue. And I think in many ways we were trained to kind of pivot the conversation because actually what people wanted to talk about was, does God accept me as a person. So just change, change the conversation, get to the core. And I recognized that wasn't fooling anyone. It, it actually was the core of what people wanted to talk about. It was about their sexuality or their gender identity and faith. And, um, and I just kept hitting walls. So I, at the same time, I also had an intern um, who was working with our ministry. Um, and I saw her desiring to know God more. Um, and there was just a wall for her. Um, and I could see it. You could see this burden on her shoulders um, that she, she was so longing for God, but, but couldn't get past something. Um, and I never really asked or pressured her. Um, but one day she decided to share that she was gay. And the only thing that she could hear is that God does not love her, that she's disgusting, and that she's going to hell. Um, and I, I just walked with her uh, through the process of, of tears and laughter and just saying and learning how much God truly loves her and loves her um, knowing who she is, not despite who she is, but as she is, like God truly loves her and there's nothing that she could do or say or be that would uh, cause God to love her less. Um, and I saw just in two conversations, the weight just lift off of her shoulders. It was, it was a, almost an immediate, like shift, it was insane. Um, and she said, as, as long as I had been with this ministry, she grew up as a missionary's kid with Jews for Jesus. She said, as long as I'd been with this ministry, I never truly had faith in Jesus because I knew I was gay and I couldn't actually believe. Um, and, and I'd heard so many nasty things about homosexuality. But it was the moment that someone finally told me that I could actually have a relationship with Jesus. I had permission to be loved by God. Now, now I believe and, and I want to tell others like me. Um, so she had decided to come on staff with the ministry and I was really advocating for her and trying to pave the way for her in that way. Um, but unfortunately, Jews for Jesus was not ready um, to have someone like her on staff. And, 
actually had said some very hurtful, harmful things uh, to her in the process. And it was just even more um, solidified in my mind with other things <laughs> um, that, that this kind of ministry is necessary, that we have Christians who are essential to the kingdom of God, who don't have a voice um, because people are scared of them or there's these theological strongholds that are so drenched in culture, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and probably a lot of people don't know it. Um, and then also, you know, in the process of learning and loving um, these people well and, and getting to know Meg through posture shift, um, I was also challenged by God uh, to really kind of look internally in my own story um, because my mantra to, to those I was ministering to was how do you honor God with your sexuality and gender identity? Um, and at one point I, I was listening to people's testimonies at a conference about their own sexuality and gender and how God had worked in and through them. And, and I kept thinking, wow, these stories sound so familiar. Like, why do all these stories sound so familiar? And I had like this pit in my stomach and I, I felt terrible. And then I heard the Lord say to me, it was one of those moments where, you know, I don't say it often. I heard the Lord say something to me, but I, it was a moment where I heard the Lord say, Elizabeth, you know that I know that I know that you know that you all, this is a part of your story too, that you also have been attracted to girls, women, all of your life. And you just didn't ever want to speak of it. And I understand that. I couldn't even say it to God. Like I remember being a teenager and I didn't want to utter the words because once you say it, it's real, right? So I would just say, God, you know that thing that I can't talk about. Can you just take it away? Because it can't be true because I'm a Christian. Like Meg said, I'm a Christian. So the Lord said, you can continue to hide it and not tell anyone. And I will be there with you in the secret. Or you can allow the light of salvation to come through into those areas that you've locked the door so tightly and trust that I'm going to be on the other side. And I was like, okay, I think for the first time, I'm going to actually like, I'm going to do it. Um, and I was able to share with close friends and my husband and see how amazing God is on the other side. Like I, I had no idea um, how grateful I would be. And, and I think, again, it was catalyst to me that like, more people need to experience this, not, not just in the church. I'm so thankful that people in the church are experiencing it, but I want LGBTQ folks who have never heard the gospel to experience this kind of freedom in Christ. So, yeah, I think that that was really what mm, brought us together and what started things. Mm. Well, th thanks so much for sharing. It's uh, really amazing and wonderful. Um, so Kaleidoscope comes into being somehow and, uh, I was reading on the website, it says uh, that um, Kaleidoscope provides or seeks to provide expressions, tangible expressions of the body of Christ for LGBTQ plus people. Um, can you tell us a bit about what that actually looks like? What, what might that look like? Yeah, um, so we use the word tangible in our vision statement just because I think a lot of the um the church backgrounds we come from we see people kind of talking about 
theology, but not really being in contact with LGBTQ people and not actually being the hands and feet of Jesus, not being present. And uh, when we do our instructions for church leaders, we talk a lot about church history and the history of the church and the LGBTQ community. And um, one, one aspect of that is just the, the absence and the apathy of Christians. You look at something like the AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s, and you see that the church was largely absent. Uh, there weren't a lot of Christians on the, the front lines of you know, trying to produce um, some, some medication that could help this community uh, regardless of what they what they thought about them. Um, and there's so many other examples that I could give, but we really think that in this time and in every time, God is wanting the church to be uh, tangibly present. So um, a couple examples of that are just, we we try to go into the LGBTQ community and see what, what a lot of the needs are and just meet those needs. So sometimes that could be uh, someone like our friend from Venezuela who came out as transgender and was rejected by her family. She came to New York to try to find one last relative that might accept her and knocked on his door and he turned her away. And so she's in New York, she's homeless. Uh, what, what does God wanna do with her life at this point in time? And we would say, well, we think that, that God wanna give her a home and a family and so uh, we've done some work with her to try to empower her to find a safe place to live and to, to look for work. Um, so that's, that's one example. Um, another, another aspect of just LGBTQ culture and history and, and needs is there's loneliness. There's just a need for family. And a lot of people have been rejected by their families or their families will kind of hold them in an arm's length, but not really feel comfortable around them. And so that's one need we can really meet in our evangelism and discipleship is to say, you know what, uh, God is inviting you into a chosen family, but not just to say that, but to actually really be that family for people. It's great. It's, it's, it's powerful and inspiring stuff. And what really shines through both of you is your passion for the good news, your passion to see the, the, the true gospel, the good news shared uh, to everybody, especially those who feel like they're not worthy to receive it uh, or don't know it. So I'm really interested in um, whether there are any specific sort of uh, biblical tests or, or, or moments in scripture or perhaps metaphors, maybe it's conversations or encountered, encounters with Jesus that are, are particularly shaping for you and, and for Kaleidoscope? Um, I think for me, something that I've been meditating a lot on lately uh, is the, the story of the woman at the well. <clears throat> I think it's just such a beautiful story for so many reasons when you think about, um, you know, missions and the gospel. But I think what's what I've been really thinking a lot about is how Jesus, Jesus's posture towards this woman wasn't to call her out on her on her sin. Um, the first thing that took place was that he asked her to serve him. And I, I just think that that is just so beautiful that he didn't go in, you know, high and mighty. He, he went in as, as a humble, like listener and receiver of a gift 
from someone he was going to, to reach and care for. Um, and then also gave her the floor to share the truth of her situation, um, but didn't wasn't really trying to trick her or call her out. And I think I had always heard the story told in that way, but revisiting it. Um, and also I, I learned a lot of this from um, a book called Leaving the Church During a Time of Sexual Questioning, excellent book. Um, and, and the author talks a lot about this, uh, but, but Jesus wasn't trying to trick her into to sharing that she had all of these men that she was involved in. She willingly gave that information up because of the posture that Jesus had and kind of the way that he was approaching her with such care. Um, and, and then at the end, and this is what I love the most in thinking about it recently, is that once she was like, yes, I want this living water, she, she goes back and tells her community about it. Um, and the author in this book says she was essentially the first missionary that we see, you know, in the gospel itself. And you don't see before she leaves Jesus saying, before you go, make sure you um, you know, stop sleeping with these seven men or, you know, how I, now I'm forgetting how many, um, you know, but stop, stop sleeping with these men. Don't do these kind of sins anymore. I'm going to need a record to make sure that you're not doing all the things that you probably shouldn't do. Like he just allowed this woman to go out with the fervor of the gospel that she had of this living water. And we see a whole community transformed. And I just, that has been so powerful, such a powerful uh, narrative to me, because I think we focus so much on like the behavior of people. And we really want to see people change um, the way that we want to see them change before we even think that their faith is valid, let alone give them any opportunity to serve in any capacity. And I think time and time again, we don't see that in scripture, I mean, John the Baptist was just telling people, come and repent. And people, loads of people were coming and just being baptized. He didn't ask them to, you know, give him a checklist of all the things that they're repenting of or that they stopped. So I, I just, I just want to welcome people with this posture of just open gospel invitation and trust that the Holy Spirit is really going to be doing the work, you know, along with us. Um, in whatever transformation um, and love that needs to happen, not just the, these behavioral changes that we focus so deeply on. That's so good. What about you, Meg? Any texts, metaphors, encounters of, in scripture with Jesus that are particularly shaping for you? Love to hear that. Yeah, there's actually a couple that come to mind. One is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what I think is challenging about this story is you have two different types of people who've who've given their lives to following God, to being leaders, and they're passing by on the other side of this person that they just see and end up deciding to walk by. And in this story, it's not just that they decided, oh, you know, I'm I'm not gonna go and care for this person. Um, what, what we're seeing in these two examples is that there's actually some unclean laws that these, um, that the priest and the Levite are trying to be aware of. And that's the idea. If you touch someone's, someone else's blood, or if you touch a dead body, 
you would be considered unclean and you couldn't do your priestly duty. And so I think I see this a lot in, in the church today that we are so worried about, oh my gosh, am I going to become unclean? Am I going to be dirty if I'm engaging with this community? Um, I need to be holy. I need to be set apart. And yet what we see in this parable is that Jesus is celebrating the person who goes and touches this person and picks him up and carries him and takes care of him and sees to it that his needs are met, um, not just in the spiritual sense, but in a very holistic sense. And I really think that that, is, that same Jesus is asking us as the church to, to engage and to actually make contact uh, with this community that we've been set apart from. Um, the other passage that comes to mind is Acts chapter 10, and just honestly, the, the whole of Acts, there's so many dynamics in the New Testament that, again, growing up, I don't think I really noticed before, but just the, the interaction between these two cultures, and uh, I think, of course, when we're looking at gender and sexuality, it's very different in many ways from something like race or ethnicity or nationality. Um, but I think when we when we look at this community through a cultural lens, it can be really powerful. And I think what strikes me a lot in this chapter is that you have, um, I believe it's Paul who's talking about Peter, and Peter is the one who received this dream about the Gentiles, and it said, uh, you know, don't call unclean what God has made clean. And um, in this example. Paul is actually calling out Peter and saying, Peter's leading people astray because in some circumstances he will eat with Gentiles, but in other circumstances, he's not only refusing to eat with them, but telling other people to do the same. And so Paul, who very much, he represents the law in so many ways. He calls himself, you know, like a Jew's Jew. He, he knows the law uh, back to front. And yet he is preserving the culture of the Gentiles who are becoming Christians. And of course, Gentiles are sinners, just like Jewish people. Um, and so I think by seeking to preserve that culture, he's not saying, okay, everything that they're doing, everything that has been happening uh, before they have come to Christ is just, their life's going to look exactly the same, right? That doesn't happen for any of us. Uh, but what he's saying is there's a culture here and there's, there's something that that is is true of our culture as Jewish people, as the chosen people of God, um, that God is not asking of these people. And so I think it's it's important to look at those cultural differences and to say, where is God actually asking us to to not erase culture, uh, to try to police what kind of language people are using to talk about themselves, uh, to try to make people fit into a mold of, okay, you need to marry the opposite sex and have kids. And that's the way to be a Christian, because of course, that's what Jesus and Paul did, right? <laughs> um, so I think we need to start asking ourselves, what does it look like to preserve this culture and to, to look at what is, an, what is a redeemed LGBTQ person or community look like in a way that doesn't look like a straight person's life or like I guess, heterosexual culture. Yep. As you're both speaking, I can picture that there's people all across the world saying, yes, like I, I'm with you. I get this. I, I, I want to join. Sign me up. Yeah. Now, you run you run something called Aspiring Allies. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and maybe tell us 
what you're seeing is the the need and the impact for this kind of solidarity with with marginalized people what sort of impact does it have yes so again um so my my friend sam juan in australia he has talked about how a lot of times the church will look at LGBTQ people through a soteriological or homartiological lens. So we only look at this people group through the lens of sin or salvation, but he says we need to learn to look at this people group through a sociological lens. And when I look at the idea of an ally, this is a person who is not LGBTQ, but wants to come alongside an LGBTQ person or the community in a way that uplifts them. And I think as Christians, we we can have the aroma of Christ in our world when we seek uh, the common good and when we also proclaim the gospel. So when I look at allies, what, what I see there is basically cross-cultural missions. You have straight people who are wanting to care, but they don't know how. And I don't know the statistics around the world, but I know according to a recent Barna study, 87% of Christians are uncomfortable talking to LGBTQ people that's compared with 52% of the general population. So in general, Americans are pretty uncomfortable talking to LGBT people, but Christians even more so. And we see in those statistics that LGBT people are more comfortable talking to Christians even than vice versa. And so it's not, it's not necessarily a matter that we don't, we're not reading our Bibles, we're not praying, we don't have these spiritual disciplines, but there's a lot of cultural understanding that we just really do not have. So when we uh, have our aspiring allies group, it's a lot of just empowering basically cross-cultural missionaries because they, they hold the gospel and they have the great commission uh, that's, that's been put on them by Jesus. They have something important to offer to this community. But in order to do that in an effective way, we need to have um, some training and teaching. And that's part of, you know, I, I'm sure you guys talk a lot about um, the like APEST, the five different gifts, apostles, past, uh, prophets, teachers, and so on. And I think one way that we operate is through teaching uh, people about this type of cross-cultural missions. And I think um, to add to that, we, we really want it to be at, uh, to go along with our mission of these tangible expressions. So we don't want it to just be a, a teaching experience or some kind of lecture. Like we do have a training for pastors, which I, I would say is still not as much of a classroom experience, but a little bit more so than aspiring allies. For allies, we, we say you're already out there. You know, we're talking about your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, your sister or brother, like people in your family and, and in your sphere of influence already. So how can you come through this training and actually say, there are some things that I'm going to do that's going to be impactful to my community around me that will ex express love and grace and the gospel, you know? And so, so we really try to make it a, a, a discipleship experience. So though it goes on, it goes on for six months, but the only, the first two months are the real instructional, uh, if you can call it that piece. And then the rest of it is 
you going out and doing the work that you've committed to do and you were trained to do over the two months. And then we come back together once a month and work through those things, workshop those things, talk about what was successful, what wasn't, so that you can go back out and do, do it again, do more, kind of innovate uh, what that looks like. Um, so we, we wanted to, again, not just be this theoretical thing where you could pat yourself on the back and say, wow, I talked about gay people a lot this month, so I feel really good. <laughs> but you're, you're doing something um, that's really helpful for the community. So good. That's really good. So, you know, you, you've got, it sounds like you've got local expressions of, of church uh, in New York. Uh, but you, as we've just been talking about the this event or this training um, towards like trying to uh, support and catalyze the sense of solidarity and allyship. Is that a word? Allyship? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which which is which is crucial um so you've, you've kind of got this local posture but also like a real heart to serve the wider church mm-hmm. um and uh my, my question is you, you dropped it in there a safe pastors training as well because there'll be a lot of uh people leading churches will be listening to this um just could you tell us very shortly what that is that training and i guess the big perhaps the more significant part of the question or my where my curiosity is um is what kind of like skills or postures are you hoping to see emerge from leaders uh, that that do this training? Yeah, well, I think in terms of skills, a lot of that will come from just the more you start to learn LGBTQ language and history and culture, and you learn to speak that and you learn to be immersed in that uh the the more that 87 percent is going to go down and there are going to be people who are very comfortable around lgbtq people um and yet i think what we see in pastors is actually this kind of miraculous heart transformation uh we see people um starting to understand their own stories better um you know elizabeth had talked about how in her own learning about this community God was prompting her to go over her own story of gender and sexuality. And so we encourage pastors, um, regardless of how they would identify, I think the majority of them are going to be straight and cisgender, but um, they've also learned not to talk about sexuality and gender and to have um, really strict type of narratives about what, what that looks like. And in order to be comfortable with another person's story, it's important that we can actually bring those aspects of our own lives to to God. Uh, I think another skill is just learning to to trust God to go into the margins and taking steps to engage with LGBTQ people in a way that is scary or feels uncomfortable, uh, but where they can have that trust that God is leading them there, regardless of what other people are are thinking. In our, we have an LGBTQ Bible study and we're studying the book of Exodus right now. And you see in this book, um, Moses, who very much feels uncomfortable and is doubtful and yet is um, being asked to go into a new place. And as he does, all of God's people in Israel are, are accusing him. They're saying, why are you doing this? You're making this harder on us. And um, I think, what what we've been doing for decades is we've made it very difficult and burdensome on LGBTQ people 
to to try to access fellowship with other people and what we need to say i think as pastors to say um, i'm going to take that burden i'm going to be visible in in talking about this and i'm going to get a lot of criticism and sabotage for it but i'd rather it be me than an lgbtq person in my community so yeah. i think that's the type of we want to have that type of differentiation as leaders and that that boldness and that ability to to weather uh, sabotage or accusation for the sake of someone else having the path to Christ and to fellowship uh, cleared for them. Yeah, yeah, and I I think also to to help pastors think outside of their their own church walls as well. Um, and and thankfully, I feel like most of the pastors that come to our training are already thinking missionally. You know, I think unfortunately there are a lot of churches that are more concerned about you know their own programming and keeping everything tight inside but I think for the most part uh, the pastors who come to us are pastors who are like no we want to be out in our communities um, serving but it's so easy there is a lot of easy inroads to serve the homeless community uh, in general or, you know, yeah, to be do a soup kitchen kind of outreach or to just go out and do something for the kids, you know, a vacation Bible school and invite the community into that. But there, there aren't many inroads, natural inroads that people find to, um, to care for the LGBTQ community outside of their church. And I, I think, again, like Meg was saying, there's a lot of fear around that. Well, if I do that, then what if it looks like I'm condoning this? Or if I do that, then maybe, oh my gosh, all these gay people are going to come to my church and then what? So, you know, we try to, you know, work through some of those um, trepidations and fears and, and things that stand in the way. And then also um, included is, well, we hope these gay people come through your doors. Like we hope that these LGBTQ folks are coming to your church after you're doing all this outreach. So then how do you pastorally care for these folks? Um, you know, what, how, because you, you have marriage uh, ministries, you have ministries to couples, you have couples counseling, you have singles ministry, you have kids ministry, but how are you, because you understand, sorry, you understand that all of those subgroups have their own cultural context and have their own specific needs, but how are you caring for the LGBTQ folks who are going to be coming and looking for pastoral care? So those are some of the things we highlight as well. And just really giving them opportunities to actually do the tangible work themselves. So one of the weeks of our program uh, for safe pastors is we take our pastors out on the field um, to do LGBTQ missions and ministries. So we partner with secular LGBTQ organizations here in New York and uh, are open to and have already started to, to build relationships outside of New York um, so that our pastors, uh, we take our pastors uh, out with these LGBTQ folks and we spend a day together. We go ice skating, we have hot chocolate, we um, go to museums together and just give these pastors opportunities to care for people um, so that they can go back to their church and say, again, this isn't theoretical. I did it myself. Like I did it and now we're going to do it together as a church. Yep. 
So as you're doing this stuff, and I guess you're in, you're in a really unique situation because you're able to look out uh, towards a whole range of different denominations and, and mainstream churches. So I'm interested in that view. What what commonalities are you seeing? And I guess that's a two two part question. What commonalities are you seeing in terms of the motivation and the heart and the missional mindset of those churches that decide to lean into this inclusive journey? But also, what are the common movement blockers? Are you seeing any common themes for people that um, want to get alongside um, or when you get alongside leaders that people are really wanting to see change, but there's just a block in their church? Um, hmm. One, I just want to say with that, that question, I can do the first part like that. Like <laughs> first, first question, the answer came right to me most of the, our pastors and ministry leaders are those coming from um, diverse or ethnic minority churches. And I think it is extremely telling. Well, first of all, it's telling in a good way that I like is because that's one of our, our missional values is diversity. So we're purposefully trying to um, to cater to uh, those churches that are ethnic minority churches or um, or you know diverse churches, but I I the response has been great. I mean we have so many people coming from Hispanic backgrounds, African American backgrounds, um, Asian backgrounds, and I think to me it says these are folks that already know what it feels like to be on the margins. These are folks who already know what it's like to live through and with stereotypes. Um, they already know the importance of cultural context, con like context uh, within the church and within their faith expression. So I think there's already room and openness to say, yeah, I want to serve this community because I've been hurt and I don't want anyone else to continue to be hurt or I value my own cultural uh, needs in my faith expression. So I wanna be able to, to give that value or ascribe that value to someone else. Awesome, thanks. And, and, and Meg, I guess, are you seeing something or can you, can you share something from the other side? What are some of those common movement uh, blockers that, that pop up as you come alongside leaders? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is, is a, what I'm seeing is very much around just the emotional experience of anxiety around stepping into something new. Um, I think pastors who are in a place where they, they can be aware and mindful of how they're feeling when they're engaging with a different people group or um, something that feels like a threat to them if they can stay grounded um, emotionally and, and even in prayer to be authentic before God and like just being able to say, okay, God, there's this person who came to my church and they're LGBT and I'm uncomfortable. Can you help me? Uh, I think if we did a lot of that and we came to God in prayer around some of the discomforts that we have as pastors or church leaders, our engagement would look so different. But this anxiety is something I'm also seeing on a very institutional and organizational level. I think one way we're seeing this is through, um, we're, we're just responding with a lot of defensiveness and we can put, um, 
we can kind of put up walls, even in the form of statements to say, okay, here's what we're about, here's what we're not, here's how we're different from you. Um, so just so that you know, we're very much different from you. And uh, I think what we really need to do is look at people <laughs> rather than handling a lot of our ministry on this huge global institutional level, we need to be able to say, okay, who's God putting in front of me in my context? And how can I engage with that person without feeling like I'm, I'm having to, uh, I'm making a huge statement on behalf of my entire organization. I think that is something that's really freezing people. Uh, and honestly, I think that sense of being frozen and not being able to do anything is sort of a spiritual stronghold. And uh, a quote from, from C.S. Lewis, it's used in a different context, but it's this idea that uh, you don't know how how strong something is until you resist it. And in that context, I think C.S. Lewis is talking about the idea of temptation toward individual sin. But I think it's also true where we can be tempted on a corporate level uh, toward the sin of apathy, toward not actually moving, toward not going to the other side of the street. And so I think there's the people who are wanting to be more inclusive are coming up against those strongholds. And I think if we can see those through a spiritual level, rather than just, oh, I'm, I'm deviant and I'm not sure where God is in this, um, I think God really is moving us more into the margins and that we need to come together and um, come together in prayer for God to break down these strongholds so that we're not frozen in our missions anymore. That's so good. Um, I've got a question. It probably the last question, and that, as I ask it, I'll, um, we we don't, we've got many people listening. I don't know who they are, but <laughs> we hope there's people listening to this um, who are, you know, finding themselves in all different kinds of contexts. Um, but one thing, perhaps, many of us deep down or were sensing is that we're at a critical juncture in history. It just feels like it's one of those one of those moments of immense upheaval and, and change and, and flux. Uh, and in the midst of that, we, we kind of sense that all of us, we, we need a, a vision of the kingdom, which is both big and dynamic enough to, to shift the tracks of history uh, when it comes to the church, the expression of the church and um, the, the way it's going to smell, taste and, and be in the future. Uh, here's my question to you and, and really would love you to, speak from both the mind but also the heart your, your longings uh, what you're longing to see what would you love to say to leaders pioneers and folks on the frontiers of mission who are, who are passionate about uh, seeing more inclusive expressions of the kingdom of god um, what practices wisdom encouragement would you like to say what would you long to say to to folks who are listening It's a big I think one. <laughs> it's a big one, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. Meg, no, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes this work can feel really isolating. We've talked about the idea of visibility and that some of us are, are doing um, the work of LGBTQ missions in a way that feels very closeted, for lack of a better word. We, we can't really share with our congregation or with other people that God has laid this community on our heart. 
uh, we're not as allies in the church, we're not being discipled by our pastors and our allyship. And so it can feel like it's wrong <laughs> to, to care for this community, to want to be more involved. And um, I think what I encourage people to say, to, to know is that uh, God is with you and is going before you and take heart because you're not the only one. Uh, there are so many people around the world in every cultural context, whether you see it or not, whether you're in Nairobi, Kenya, or Singapore, or India, there, anywhere that you are, there are people that the spirit is moving in their hearts. And don't be deceived in thinking that you're crazy for, for stepping out into this work. Know that God, God has a movement that's that's sometimes hard to see, but that's kind of how the kingdom always is. It it appears humble and quiet, and it kind of comes from from the ground up. And uh, just be encouraged that um, God is with you. I think the first thing I would want to say is, please, please remember that we're talking about people and souls and those made in the image of God. Um, and Meg alluded to this earlier. I just think, you know, we so often see this as an issue or a theological kind of topic, but behind every debate and conversation are hundreds and thousands and thousands and hundreds of people who are just waiting to experience God. And, and they're everywhere, whether they tell you their story or not. Um, they are in, in every culture and every space. And these are just people who are just as deserving and undeserving of the gospel as you were. Um, so please like just see us as, as people who need the nurturing hand of the father. Um, and, and similar to as Meg said as well, is that because we know and we see one another as people, um, don't allow your allegiance to kind of organizations or um, you know, church politics stop you from caring for the children of God. Um, I, I think there's so much red tape, or at least in in our in America, I don't know how it is in your in other cultural contexts, but in America, there's so much red tape around some of this stuff that, as Meg said, many people are like, oh, we can't even engage with this population because, you know, I don't want to lose my job or I don't want people to think that I'm, you know, affirming or I don't want people to think I'm not affirming or I don't, I just, I can't even get into the conversation. I might get sued. That's a big thing in the American church as well. Like, oh, I have to make the statement and avoid these this community at all costs because I don't want to get sued that that how big is your God like is your God so small that you have to be so concerned about the reputation of your organization and getting sued like I serve a much bigger God than that um so I I think just keeping our eyes on the Lord and trusting that he is a big God who longs to see the kingdom, his kingdom in the LGBTQ community as it is in heaven. Like he wants to see his kingdom in 
the queer communities as it is in heaven. That is my prayer. And I hope that that will become the prayer of so many of you listening today. I, I can't help but think there'll be a lot of people listening who feel like they have that as a prayer, but haven't been able to articulate it or understand where it's coming from, or perhaps put some action to that deep thought, that longing, that prayer, that desire that's welling up inside them. So for people who are looking to find out more or, 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 or research a little bit, or perhaps get involved in something like Safe Pastor Training, where can we get more information? Absolutely. So uh, the first place is just to go to our website. We're also on um, social media, so feel free to follow us there. We have a, a monthly newsletter. It's so important to just stay connected when you're feeling isolated. So, so please find ways to stay in touch with us. As for safe pastors and aspiring allies, uh, go ahead and, and see if you would be interested in joining for the next semester. Otherwise, we have a wait list that you can sign up for. Uh, we'd love to see some, some interest uh, outside of the states. And the more interest that we get, the more we will have the ability and capacity to, to uh, train people or, or unite people in this discipleship and in this work. Uh, so those are a couple of ways that I would say. And also just, you know, this, the spirit is moving beyond kaleidoscope too. And um, if there's ways that you can get connected with other people locally, um, finding parents of LGBTQ kids in your community and just getting them connected or uh, finding other pastors with this heart, finding other ministries that are in your uh, region or country that are starting to try to, to spark these conversations. Just uh, get connected with them wherever and however you can. Yeah. Uh, uh, Elizabeth and Meg, thank you so much. What one, um, uh, blessing I guess that Mark and I have today that the listeners don't is that we actually get to see you because we're chatting on Zoom and for those uh, who can't see you I, I just want to say the the spirit is so clearly and evidently on fire in you and through you you are both just glowing and as we talk I'm sure the listeners will pick it up just in the listening but I, I, I just want to paint that picture because as we sit here and look at you and talk with you you are on fire God is alive in you and his love is bursting out of you and it's so clear that you are having a most remarkable impact just uh, for many reasons but but at, at because of, of that great love that you have for him and the great love you have of sharing the good news of Jesus and it's just pouring through you so thank you so much uh, for your work thank you so much for your willingness to put your hand up and lead in this way thank you so much for your patience and the grace that must be involved in being a part of, of work like this and in bridging the gap uh, you, 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 you both and the organisation, you're an absolute blessing to the community and we thank you and we thank you for taking this time out uh, through sickness and in health to talk with us uh, today and inspire us on a little bit. Well, thank you both so much. It really was a pleasure. And thanks for the compliment. I can't believe I'm glowing through COVID, but that's, that's Jesus <laughs> for you. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. Thanks so much. And if you're listening, stick around. We're going to take a quick 
breath and uh, come back and reflect a little on some of the incredible stories and power and passion that we've just heard. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks. Well, that was a fascinating and full interview with Megan and Elizabeth. And, and Chris, before we go on, I just want to say the way you ended that interview was was great. You're so encouraging, really affirming them. Thanks. It, it, was, it was just what was on my heart. And as I said at the time, to see them both, you see as they're talking to women who have got beautifully deep relationships with Jesus Christ and just want to see other people know uh, he the love of of God as they have experienced it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the best we've ever finished an interview. So inspiring. Right, I'll take that. Do, do I get a badge? Do <laughs> I get a star? Yeah, yeah. You do, you do. I'll send it to you in the post, mate. Well, um, listen. Let's uh, come back to um, the interview, and uh, I mean, so much we could talk about and focus on and lift up, and we could be talking for for much longer than we've got, but. What, what were the things that grabbed you? Maybe the things that you don't want to forget from um, from the conversation, what were you hearing? There, there's so much there, isn't there, um, to, to draw on. What Something that came became really evident to me is that as these two women drew nearer to God, they found God opening their understanding of, of himself and of others. Uh, this, this beautiful moment where they realized when they had this moment where they didn't have the answers uh, and that they were seeking Jesus in a new way, there they met something really beautiful and deep in Christ who who then called them out into this new mission, into this new opportunity. Um, I think it was really quite quite beautiful to hear. Um, there was something too that, that, that was quite early in the piece around conversations in the church and that the, the church really hasn't been, and perhaps in many places still isn't, the place to talk about anything to do with sexuality, not just around gay or lesbian or trans or, or, or queer issues, but, you know, singleness and celibacy and exploration. We just don't have those conversations. And they refer to it, you know, it doesn't happen in youth groups and we don't have people in our, in our churches with lived experience. And so people who have grown up in the church just don't have anywhere that's safe to explore this stuff. Mm. And so they go elsewhere. Although that did lead me wondering, sometimes that means that we say, oh, all right, well, we need to fix this. And so we need to have a safe place in our church for young queer people to talk about sexuality or for young heterosexual people to talk about singleness or sex before marriage. I can't help but wonder, Mark, I'm interested in your view here, but I wonder if actually we don't need to reinvent the wheel on this because there are plenty of organisations out there who do this stuff really well, you know, youth-specific organisations and sexual health organisations and, and other, other groups that do have these conversations. And so maybe it comes with a more humble posture of us saying, well, we can take our youth group or our young adults to those places and we can sit and we can listen and we can learn and then build the relationships with the others in those groups and see some of the stuff we heard about uh, from from what, what the, the women do through Kaleidoscope, but actually seeing those relationships come together. Mm, good stuff, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it works in the US, but I did get the sense that they were partnering up with various organisations in the city. I mean, I've not seen anything yeah. of that in our European context. Um, I think there's a deep suspicion, certainly in Sweden, around the church in general. So, mm. the, I, you know, it's quite hard to kind of partner up with organisations that will trust the church. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what to think more, more than that. I just think it's wise, isn't it, like to to have that mindset that, that you know okay we we've maybe been entrusted with a significant uh treasure in the church mm. but it's not all locked up in church buildings and, and there's wisdom and there's you know god's yeah. about the communities in the community um, and that's that's where too i think that partnering comes in that we're not going and then they picked up on this of course but we're not going with all of the answers but we're also seeking to come alongside and learn and so I guess there's two levels institutionally you know the, the leaders of our church our ministers our pastors the the youth leaders can go out and maybe build some of those relationships in their neighborhood with the organizations that do this stuff and we're seeing that here in in my work and with the team i work with mm. we're building those relationships at that at that level and asking how can we come alongside how can we support how can we learn about what you do and join you? Yeah. But then personally, uh, I think it's there's great opportunity just to get to know the people in your area. You know, who who is that gay couple that's living in the apartment down the hall? Who you know, where where are there other people? Who who's your barista? That cool girl with the funky hair and the nose piercings. You know, get to know people for the sake of building relationships, not not for the sake necessarily of trying to understand the queer community, mm. but to, to build those relationships and build those connections of depth. Um, and I think what you'll often find as you do that is that you see that God is already at work in those people. Mm. And we often find in the church that we, we think we have all the answers. You know, we think we're the ones with Christ and we need to take it. And of course, that's true. But in many cases, particularly in, in the in the queer community, Christ is already at work. Mm, mm. When we build relationships with people, we see that. And so we're able to then participate in the beautiful work that he's already doing. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking off the back of the interview, just touching on what you're saying, but it was making me remember what um, I think it was Megan. She kept coming back to this idea of cross-cultural yep. uh, a posture, maybe that's the word she used. And um which is opposed to the idea of just opposing, imposing your ideology yeah. or way of doing things, or you need to do it the way we do it in order to be in. Um, I would love to have heard more about that because she kept coming back to it and the need of it, like, uh, and uh, with the sense of, yeah, there's so much that we need to maybe lay down in order to, yeah. um, receive the learning that's there you know and and, the, yep. and also that that idea i think it was subtle but we talked about it as well i think before about the idea that god's already present mm -hmm. he's not locked up just within the church he's already present in community so is there something we might learn yep by having and that posture by going in um this is something that they you know we might really need to learn in this time in this in this age yep. as well and look, there are there are stats around this, of course, which we which you know listeners might feel free to to uh, pursue. But I, I can tell you very clearly that there are large numbers of people who are lesbian or gay or trans, uh, queer, who have deep relationships with Christ, and they've kept those relationships through really heavy adversity. 
They've been excluded from the church. They've been told they don't fit. They've been put off by the messages that come from the church. And yet they've still, without that, that Christian community, without the fellowship, without the Sunday meetings, without the Bible studies, they've still maintained a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that sometimes a stronger relationship than many people who go to church every Sunday have because you have to have built it just with you and Jesus. There's nothing else to help you frame that relationship. And so, of course, there's much we can learn from people who have had to go through that adversity and and, and explore the Bible in that context. You know, for a lot of, of queer people, um, just as in the past, in, in American context, you know, African-Americans, people of colour, queer people have had to dig deep into the scriptures to understand right. the true word, to understand the true nature of God, to understand themselves, because the Bible has been used as a weapon against us for mm -hmm. so long. We've mm -hmm. been told that there are these passengers that say that we're abominations and we're evil and we're wrong and we have to change. But we know and we heard from from the two two women that God speaks to us. God tells us we are loved. God tells us we are the way we're meant to be. And so we have to deep dive into the scripture. We have to understand fully, uh, more fully, who Jesus is and where he fits and where we fit. And so there's something really beautiful and deep that comes out of that sort of exploration uh, that many queer people have had to do. Mm. And I think, like you say, there is something we can learn from that. Yeah. And and just like with, with Kaleidoscope and with Megan and Elizabeth, it was really clear, wasn't it, that they were, there was a real like, um, I mean, who am I to say, but a real healthy sense of yeah. the gospel and the kingdom yes. that was right front and centre of everything that they were doing. Um, and, a, and a love for scripture, you could hear that in the way they were, you know, offering their, you know, when we asked the question, what metaphors or moments in scripture yes. were significant, you know, we were captivated, I was captivated by what yeah. they were saying. They it's, came alive. They came alive. There was a real like yeah. spirit in that. Um, uh, and I think that's really important because that's sometimes thrown, as you say, thrown at the <laughs> at those who are working, you know, for and trying to forge this conversation forward yeah. and work towards community was sometimes thrown at as though they don't take the Bible seriously or that the gospel is being marginalized or put to the edge, you know, of things. Yeah. yeah. That was quite really the good. opposite. You you pick that up with them. They're not doing this despite the gospel. They're doing this because of it. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I wondered what you thought about um allyship as well i thought that's such an interesting that's another area i'd love to explore more and obviously they've got courses on that but just that the idea of solidarity and and joining um standing shoulder to shoulder heart to heart uh, with a marginalized community such as this um it's so, it's so important and it, it, it's great that they have the opportunities for people to connect in and learn how to be good allies and we, we've picked this up and, and I know in, in my context in the Salvation Army we have a growing number of allies, people who are so passionate about wanting to see their, um, their gender or sexuality diverse brothers, sisters, children, friends, neighbours participate fully and they keep seeing them excluded from the church and marginalized and and people i really believe people just don't know often how to how to frame that how to stand shoulder to shoulder and there's a real balance there which which we picked that they picked up on which was great that sometimes you need the allies to stand up the front and take take the fight forward and to stand shoulder to shoulder sometimes you need them to step back and help you be empowered and have the voice and have the agency yeah. and so really incredible that there are the opportunities that they have 
to understand more of how to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's I, I really can't help but think it's filling an incredible gap. Yeah, and it's so needed. I mean, just like certainly that Christ-like posture of carrying the burden rather than always yeah. placing the burden on on the. I, I keep saying marginalised group because you could apply this to various, yes. you know, groups. You know, putting the burden on them to bridge the gap or solve the, you know, the the movemental issue or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it needs people who are willing to sacrifice. Maybe. Um, I think I think one of the girls was saying that sacrifice maybe even their uh, reputation, identity, yep. and and for many of you know not, not everyone's probably willing to go there, and we know that that's not not true. Um, but but at the same token, it's only going to change if more people are you know going to courageously yeah carry that mantle. That's 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 how all movements or revolutions or. or yeah, monumental changes in society take place, really. Yeah, um, and look, I think Megan had a had a, a great challenge for those people who may uh, struggle with how to do that or how to how to stand up the front or make that sacrifice. Her her big call, I think, it was Megan. Um, how big is your God? <laughs> was her question for those people who were concerned about the risk. How big is your God? Yeah, yeah it was really challenging. Um, and we could we could talk so about so much more, uh, but what we love to do is to turn these podcasts into a little bit of a resource. Um, we don't just want you to listen to this uh, on your own. We want you to share what you're hearing and reflecting over, and that's really you know the gift of community, and and we need that to really bring into fruit the things that we're hearing, yeah. learning. We want it to be applicable and incarnated, actually. Um, so we always like finish with a couple of questions. I, I've not really thought about this, Chris, the questions we, we should have talked about that, but I guess like we want to ask you what was exciting, what grabbed you, mm. what was challenging, uh, what was significant. Um, but are there any questions that you think are worth like throwing out? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to ask people to reflect on a question that's quite specific to this topic. Right. And that is, what does repentance look like for you in this area that as we step out and as we build relationships with people who are gender or sexuality diverse as we make friends with the community leaders from from that community as we um, look to include and have safe churches we realize that a lot of the people that we're referring to here as we heard have been burdened and hurt you know the church was on the front line opposing uh gay men, particularly during the AIDS epidemic and, and condemning us all to hell and blaming us for, for, for that. Every time there's been marriage equality conversation in any country around the world, the church has been on the front line of opposing it and telling, telling queer people that they don't belong and don't uh, deserve that. There's a lot of hurt. And so if you're going to step out, the question is, we are all the body of Christ. We are stepping out as the body of Christ. So what does repentance look like? for you as you step out and take on that posture that's great that's really significant key words you know we don't want our uh, we don't want to be absent in this we don't want mm. there to be uh distance um mm. uh what does it what does it look like for us to enter into the conversation i think in in a prayerful way as well um 
I think was one of the words that, that I will take, you know, what does yeah. it look like to not just think about theology or what the Bible says, but to, to dare to ask what's the spirit saying in, in this time. And I think it was Megan who actually said that we'd probably yeah. come to very different conclusions uh, if we were that open and that courageous um, to allow God yeah. to do that kind of work within us. I hope this has been good. I'm um, sure it has. It's been brilliant for us. Uh, who do you need to share this with? Please spread it um, and share it far and wide. It's been a real pleasure. Chris Halliday. It's great hanging out again, Mark. Wonderful. Thanks for having me along. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Blessings. Bye. See ya.